Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Okay, friends, it's time to take out your phones for a multiple choice exam. So if you could take out your phones, there will be a QR code that appears on the screen if you point your camera up in that direction. Or if you're not certain how to do that, open your browser and type into the address line pollev.com slash LLUC. You can do this on the broadcast as well. So pollev.com slash LLUC or just scan the QR code. We'll give you just a few seconds to get that done because we want to know how much you know about some interesting Bible realities. Now, you have first and second service, first service and anthem that have gone before you. I'm not going to tell you yet what they got, but I will say that I've seen a few faces here from both, so that could tilt this service. (laughs) We'll have to see. All right, you ready now? Here we go. Question number one. Are we ready upstairs? We've had some challenges with our computer getting a little frozen up. Here we go. The shortest verse in the Bible in the original languages is John 11, 35, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, Luke 17, 32, Deuteronomy 5, 19, or 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, each of which is obviously very short in the English. So in the original language, which is the shortest? All right, it looks like we're just about done voting, so we need to stop it. The answer is B, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. That's a surprise, isn't it? John eleven thirty five 35 is in the English. In the original language, John eleven thirty five 35 is three words, 16 characters. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 is two words, 14 characters. Hate to tell you, but we're 0 for 1. All right, well, let's race on to number two. Number two, which is the middle chapter of the Bible? Middle chapter, Psalm 116, 117, 118, 119, or 120. Well, it's kind of a race between three there in the middle. We're moving up to 43.4% for 119. The other's a little behind. All right, so we'll stop there. Middle chapter, B, Psalm 117. Oh, mercy. <laughs> Pastor Philip, we may need to have you come up and pray for... Hey, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> what are we doing here? We've got to stop this. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I thought we were 0 for 2, Philip. It looks like we're 1 for 1 here. 1 out of 2, rather. All right, we're going to let that pass on this one, but you, guys, you've got to stop it upstairs. All right. So number three, these are the five shortest chapters in the Bible. There they are, J- 
Job 25 and Psalms 117, 131, 133, and 134. Of those, which is the shortest chapter in the Bible? I'm going to keep an eye on you all because I... We've got to make sure this is stopped before I start giving the answer here. Wow, so Psalm 117 is way ahead in this. All right, we'll stop it there. The answer is B, Psalm 117. You are correct. Curious that it is the middle chapter and the shortest chapter. 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 594 before and 594 after. All right, so what are we now? Are we, what are we really? <laughs> So we're, we'll say we're two out of three. You're doing well. All right, number four. Of the 66 books in the Bible, which is the longest, based on the number of words in the original language? I know you all read it in the original language, so this should be easy for you. Based on that, Jeremiah, Psalms, Ezekiel, Luke, or Genesis? Wow, I thought Genesis might make more of a run for it, but Psalms is way ahead. All right, so we'll stop it there. Based on the number of words in the original language, the longest book in the Bible is Jeremiah. So what are we now, two for four? We're 50%, Laia. We're just, we're, we're not too great, but we're, we're moving along. All right, the last one. The country that produces the largest number of Bibles in the world, 50% of the total is the U.S., Great Britain, China, Brazil, or Texas. So which is... Hey, that, that 5%, I want to meet you after the service. <laughs> All right, so U.S. is leading the charge with China a ways behind. All right, so now we will stop it. And I'm going to keep an eye on that to make sure it stays stopped. <laughs> Interesting. C is the answer, China. Largest number of Bibles produced in China. So two of five. We're going to have a season of prayer after this service for all three services <laughs> because we've got to do a better job when it comes to the real multiple choice exam we're taking throughout this camp meeting series. And for today's option C, you're standing at the fork in the road, you're having to make a decision about your life, and we're talking about the options and which ones you will choose to consider. Today we're at option C, and for that we go to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 3. Now remember the background to what we're going to read here. The background was read to us so well by Cece in the Scripture reading. The first half of 1 Kings 3 is the story of Solomon as he comes to the throne, as he ascends to power. He's given a dream, a vision by God in which God comes to him and says, Solomon, what do you need? What do you want? Name it and claim it. Can you imagine if God said that to you? So God asked him, what do you need in order to be able to rule, to govern these people well? And Solomon responds and says, I need wisdom, discernment, depth. And God responds to him and says, Solomon, because you have asked for wisdom, you could have asked for the life of your enemies, you could have asked for wealth, for honor. There are all kinds of things you could have asked for, but you asked for wisdom. And because of the wisdom behind that request, I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you wealth and honor in addition. So we come to the end of that story. And the question that lingers in the air for the reader is, did Solomon become wise? 
And so the chronicler, the one who writes the story, immediately goes to a story to try to give us an example of whether or not Solomon had wisdom. And that's what we read today, 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, Pardon me, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while, while your, I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. He was dead. Um, but when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't my son that I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. While that one says, no, your son is dead and my son is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. It's a simple story, though very passionate, a bit macabre, but it causes us to pay attention. I've read this many times. I've never preached on it. But in thinking about the decision-making process that we all face and standing at that fork in the road trying to decide, Solomon seems a wise choice to consider. So these two women live in the same house. Each have a child, a son, three days apart. The first one lies on her baby at night, probably the Old Testament way of saying she was trying to nurse him, keep, her, keep him close for warmth, and she smothered him. Terrible tragedy. She discovered it in the middle of the night, and then she did what I can only describe as an utterly cold-hearted move. She gets up out of bed. This woman is used to scratching and clawing her way through life, obviously. She gets up out of bed, takes her dead son, takes it over to the other bed, exchanges the two boys, brings the living one back to her own bed. A few minutes, a few hours later, we don't know, as the sunlight begins to dawn, as it light streams into the room, the other mother awakens, and we can almost imagine there are a few seconds of cooing to her baby, and then suddenly a scream. She leaps up. He's dead. But then she holds him up to the morning light and looks at him and says, I told the other two services, don't tell my wife I said this, but hey, all newborn babies look alike, <laughs> to me anyway. <laughs> So I don't know how she knew the difference, but she looks and she says, this is not my baby. That one is my baby. And thus they now stand, the two of them, before the king. 
Hebrew scholars tell us the way the story is told in the original gives us the impression that they're talking over each other as they argue back and forth. This one is mine, that one. No, 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 that one's mine, this one is yours. And back and forth they go until Solomon steps in. I can imagine that he was rather dispassionate, unemotional, because he was looking for a response. Bring me a sword. Cut the baby in two. Give half to each. And then one of them screams, Please, no, just give the baby to her. Let him live. And Solomon says, We've got our mother. This one is the mother. Give the baby to her. And the text says, all Israel was in awe. The wisdom of Solomon. So what was it that allowed Solomon in that moment, I can't imagine in that moment, making that decision and just being able to lay it out and have it transpire the way it did. But in that moment, Solomon was able to do that. And I want to suggest he did that because he had the wisdom to know how a mother is wired. What makes her tick. What's in her DNA. Solomon knew that no loving, normal, balanced, caring mother, no mother would ever accede to a request like his, ever. So when he laid it out there and there was an immediate response because he knew how a mother is wired, he said, there's our mother. That's her. He made his decision based upon a knowledge of how she was made up. In fact, listen to Thomas Constable, Old Testament scholar, who writes simply this. He says, the king, that is Solomon, had insight into basic human nature, in this case maternal instincts, that enabled him to understand why people behave as they do and how they will respond in various situations. He knew the constitution, the makeup of a mother. I want to suggest to you this morning that our key thought is this. We make our best decisions when we take into account how God has wired us. We make our best decisions when we take into account how God has wired us. So today is option C, the third one. You can see it behind me. So option A, character. Option B, counsel. Option C, composition. That's our word for today, composition. Now, I want to define that word because if you go to dictionary.com and you type in the word composition, you'll get 18 different definitions. So here's how I'm using the word composition. Referring to our makeup, how we are put together, our emotional, spiritual, social DNA, the way we're wired, what makes us tick. We need to pay attention to that in our decision-making processes. Now, we could say we need to pay attention to that individually, and we would be absolutely right. 
Every one of us has a composition, has a temperament, has loves and likes and dislikes and hatreds and pasts and present and dreams and visions, experiences, history. All of that goes into our composition, who we are. And that needs to be taken into account in the process of making decisions. In fact, if we're looking at it from that individualistic perspective, I would point you once again to the statement made by the writer Frederick Beekner. I've come back to that a number of times because it's so powerful and simple. He says, if you're trying to decide, where does God want me? What am I supposed to do? Take two things into account. On the one hand, take into account your deepest gladness. Your deepest gladness. What gives you passion? What lights your fire? What it is that you do that at the end of doing, you say, that's what I was made for. It gives you life, your deepest gladness. And then, says Beekner, pay attention to the world's deepest sadness, the brokenness around you, the human need that is everywhere on hand. And Beekner says, pay attention where those two intersect, your deepest gladness, the world's deepest sadness, that's where you should be. So we could talk about that. We could talk about our own personal composition, and it would be beneficial, but that's not what I want to focus on this morning. What I want to focus on is how are we, as human beings, as children, as creations of God, how are we all wired? Are there any realities in common? that God has woven into the fabric of our being that we ought to note as we make decisions. I've chosen three of them. I look not only at the experience of Solomon, but more broadly, more widely into Scripture. Here's the first one. You were wired for service. You were wired, designed for service. It's the reality of the world around us. Give and take, give and take. For the one who only takes, 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 life becomes a bore, a, a, a burden and a bore. You were designed, you were wired to serve. Jesus himself, when he came on more than one occasion, made the statement, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Paul in Romans 14 says none of us dies to ourselves or lives for ourselves. We are a part of the great web of humanity. No man is an island, said John Donne. We are wired for service to others. I love the way Ellen White puts it. Two brief quotes. The first one just one sentence long. Listen to what she says. All things both in heaven and in earth declare that the great law of life is a law of service. Then she expands. The law of service is written upon all things in nature, the birds of the air, beasts of the field, the trees of the forest, the leaves, the grass, the flowers, the sun in the heavens, the stars of light, all have their ministry, lake and ocean, river and water spring. Each takes to give. Notice that last statement, each takes to give. We were designed to serve. You know that feeling you get? When you have made a choice to do something in service to another person, 
And when they turn to you in gratitude, they look at you, their eyes gleaming, their tears glistening with, with their cheeks glistening with tears. They look at you and they say, I cannot tell you how deeply I appreciate what you've just done. You know that glow that you get at that moment from having given, having served, having met a need? That glow comes from the hum that happens when you are functioning as you were designed to function. That's how God designed us. We are designed for service. One author writes about the surgeon researcher and author Atul Gawande. I want to read you the words. It says, Atul Gawande describes the story of Bill Thomas, a man who in the 1990s started working as the medical director of Chase Memorial Nursing Home in the town of New Berlin, New York. He was only 31 with little or no experience in elder care. With his newcomer's eyes, Bill was shocked by the three plagues, the three plagues of nursing home existence, boredom, loneliness, helplessness. His plan was simple. Start bringing gardens, children, and pets into the nursing home. Lots of pets. Here's a snippet of the conversation that ensued after the nursing home director and his staff agreed to let Thomas bring more plants into the home. Thomas asked, how about a dog? There were safety code issues, but maybe, yeah, so I guess we can do that. Well, let me try two dogs, Thomas said. It's against code, they repeated. Let's just put it down on the paper, Thomas said. Dr. Bill was not seeing much enthusiasm in response, but he thought he was on a roll. How about cats? You want dogs and cats, they asked. They reluctantly agreed. Perfect, Bill said, beaming. And we need more sound of life around this place. You know what would be best? The sound of birds singing. Let's put down a hundred. A hundred birds in this place? You must be out of your mind. Have you ever lived in a house that has two dogs, four cats, and a hundred birds? No, said Bill, smiling. But wouldn't it be worth trying? Eventually, Dr. Bill wore them, wore them down, and they ordered the birds. The 100 parakeets all arrived on the same day. But the bird cages hadn't come yet. So the delivery man released the birds into the nursing home's beauty salon. The results were extraordinary. The number of prescriptions was cut in half with particular reduction in the use of psychotropic drugs and mortality fell about 15%. This was the starting point for a larger program named, biblically appropriate, Eden Alternative. Why was Eden Alternative so successful? Gawande concludes that we need a loyalty or a dedication to a cause beyond ourselves. It doesn't matter if this cause is small, like the care for a pet, or large. What matters is that such is a cause to provide meaning to one's life. We all need loyalty, and elderly people need it even more. People need a sense of belonging. Now listen to this sentence. We have an innate desire to be part of something larger than ourselves. We have an innate desire to be part of something larger than ourselves. When we are connected to life and each other, we thrive. When we are disconnected, we die. Something larger than myself. Let me get out of the cocoon of my isolation and my own comfort and go and serve someone because when I do that, I am functioning in the way God designed me to function. So, 
You stand at the fork in the road trying to make a decision. You want the wisdom of Solomon. If you want that, pay attention to your composition, to how you are designed. You were designed for service. So ask yourself some questions. In this decision that I'm facing, what will move me toward greater service? How can I affect more people's lives? How can I throw my life into the furrow of human need? What will most empower me to respond to the needs that surround me? As you make your decision, remember, you were designed for service. But secondly, you were designed for relationship. You were designed for relationship. In fact, that's clear from the very dawn of the scriptural narrative. Go back and read Genesis 1 and 2. You'll notice that what God is doing, he's saying, good, 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 not good. You say, wait a minute. How can all this be so good, even very good? And then he comes to a point where he says, not good. What is it that's not good? I'll tell you what it is. It's a solitary atom. Alone. Not good, says God. It's not good for the man to be alone. Why? Because I designed him for relationship for connection, for deep and meaningful exchanges with others like him. Think about Jesus. When Jesus huddled around that low-slung table with his disciples the night before his crucifixion, he gave them the new ethic of his kingdom. He said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Is it curious to you? When Jesus is outlining what is to define his kingdom, he chooses a relational virtue, love. That's what will bind you together because that's why you were designed. You were designed for relationship. So when you make decisions, ask relational questions. This past week, I've done a fair bit of reading about loneliness. It has come home to me with clarity that if COVID is a pandemic, loneliness is outpacing it. The irony is tremendous because we are an interconnected world that only becomes increasingly interconnected. And yet with all the connections in every area of our lives, the loneliness grows, especially in two groups, senior citizens and young emerging generations. Lonely. You know the name, Elon Musk. Elon Musk, he has more money than you <laughs> or me. <laughs> Elon Musk, and it depends which source you look at. They're a little bit different, but they have the same general idea and same general ballpark. Appears to be worth about $186 billion. One man. Now, just for some perspective, the piece I was reading mentioned Bill Gates, $126 billion. And it said that if Bill Gates were to spend a million dollars a day, every day, today, tomorrow, Monday, Tuesday, a million dollars every day, and just kept spending a million dollars a day every single day, the time that it would take for him to exhaust his supplies would be about 350 years. And Elon Musk, 
is 50 billion north of Bill Gates. Now, here's what's curious. In an interview several years ago after a divorce and after a breakup with a significant other, Elon Musk said to Rolling Stone magazine, I can remember it, he said, as a child. I said, I don't want to be alone. I want to be alone. And then the interviewer said, it's as though he paused and pondered that and then just whispered, I don't want to be alone. You know what Elon Musk is saying? If you don't have meaningful connections, 186 billion dollars won't fill that. Loneliness. One author I read this week said, we've come to the place where we can talk about many things that were once taboo. Even now, people are openly talking about, for example, their depression. The quarterback of a team I've cheered for over the years, Dak Prescott, a few months ago, came out and said, I've struggled with depression. Said people are now talking about it more openly, but people don't want to say, I'm lonely, because it makes them look like a loser. Like the kid in the high school cafeteria sitting all by themselves because they're strange or weird. Nobody wants to say that because they view it as a sign of weakness, a failure. But all it's telling us is that we're not living in the way that we were designed to live. If we had a car here that ran out of gas or an electric car that ran out of its charge, we wouldn't say that car is weak. We would say it needs its source of power. And that's what relationships are. We were designed for relationship. Loneliness is crippling because it goes against our design. So you stand at the fork in the road making a decision. Ask some questions about your relationships. Is the career choice I'm making, the career I'm entering, the job I'm about to take, is it going to allow time for relationship? Am I going to have the ability over the long haul to connect with family? What will it do to my marriage, to my parenting? Will I be able to maintain friendships? What about where I live? Or what about just breaking down some of the barriers that have grown up between you and others and finding reconciliation. As you make your decision at the fork in the road, ask relational questions. Because you were designed for service, but you were also designed for relationship. Thirdly, you were designed for God. You were designed for God. I want to share with you the words of Solomon, same king that made this ruling that we admire because of its wisdom. Except these words come from another book, the book of Ecclesiastes, come from Solomon's pen. I, I know Ecclesiastes is a tough book. Don't read it if you're having a bad day. It'll send you right over the edge. But there are some good things that he says here. And one of them comes in chapter 3 
where in chapter 3 he has written those immortal words. There's a time for everything under heaven, a season for every activity under the sun, time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot. You've read the words. Well, when he comes to the end of that, he says something really powerful. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 10. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He has set eternity in the human heart. It's Solomon's way of saying he has created you in a way that nothing but God can fill the core satisfactorily. He has created you with a yearning for God, eternity, a yearning for permanence. I see it too often. The last three or four weeks, I've had the honor, the honor of officiating at three or four different funerals. Every time I'm invited into that sacred circle of sorrow, Every time I see those tears flow, almost feel those hearts break, see people whose dreams lie broken at their feet, I think this should not be. This should not be. I can see it etched on their faces, that yearning for permanence, for something beyond the here and now. You were designed for God. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. C.S. Lewis says, if, if, if we have, if I have a desire for something, that desire in and of itself is evidence that the reality that would resolve that desire exists. I don't desire things that do not exist, says Lewis. He uses the example of, of a baby wanting food. He says, well, food exists. It meets that desire. Or the duckling that wants to swim. Well, water exists. It can meet that desire. Lewis says, if I desire something, that desire in and of itself is evidence that that which I desire exists. Therefore, when I have a yearning for permanence, a yearning for something that nothing in this world can fill, well, let me share it in Lewis's words, far more eloquent than mine. Lewis writes, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So when you're at a place where you are world-weary, there's a deep yearning in your soul for something that you say, nothing in my life satisfies this. That in itself is an evidence that God has placed eternity in the human heart. He has designed you for himself. And that's why you yearn for that which nothing here can satisfy. 
this week, I came across a quote that immediately skyrocketed to the top of the list of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. Just one sentence long. Here it is. Sometimes I do not think we desire heaven, but more often I wonder whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. That's it. That yearning for God because we were designed for God. So when you stand at that fork in the road, when you have to make that decision, ask yourself questions about God. Which decision can I make here that would honor God? Which decision can I make that would bring me more in harmony with his will for my life? Which would keep me following more closely in the footsteps of Jesus? Which would allow me to share the depth of my relationship with God with others? When you have to make that decision, ask yourself God questions. Because you were designed for God. And if you ignore those questions, you'll make your decision only to realize that there is that still, that deep, yawning chasm within you that has not been satisfied. So here we are, multiple choice exam. Option A, character. Option B, counsel. Option C, composition. Which will you choose? Well, I I hope you'll hold just a bit because we still have two options left. But I do want to ask you to do me a favor. This week, as you're grappling with that decision that you have to make, as you're thinking, how did God design me? What what has God woven into me that will really make me tick, really make me hum? As you're sorting that through, I want you in your mind's eye to see a young woman. Hard life. Many reasons for sorrow. But as you look at her in your mind's eye, she is almost skipping home. Clutching her baby boy close to her breast. That scene is possible only because a wise king knew what made a mother tick. So this week, open your heart to God. Say, God, as I face this decision, please, from your divine perspective as creator, show me how you have wired me and what will truly make me tick. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.